0: This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is composer and drummer Rakalam Bob Moses. Rakalam spent his youth growing up in New York City and living in the same building as Art Blakey, Max Roach. Abby Lincoln, Elvin Jones, Rashana, Roland Kirk. This early experience had a profound effect on this young musician. Rockalam would go on to work with jazz luminaries such as Gary Burton, Pat Metheny, Steve Swallow, Jack DeJohnette, C. G. Munoz, and many others. He was also a member of the group The Free Spirits in the 1960s, considered one of the first jazz rock bands ever. Many were introduced to Rockalam's drumming by way of Pat Metheny's very first solo record, Bright Size Life, in 1976, with a young Jaco Pastorius on bass. Rockalam is also a composer and leader on many recorded projects going back decades. If you want to support the podcast, you can join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash working drummer for as little as a dollar a month. You can have access to all our educational content in recent weeks. We've been adding quite a bit of content that includes a video from former guests like Bruce Becker. He did a video just for us. We also have a video from former guest Brian Zach, where he goes into how to improve your ride swing patterns and recent guest Mike Malone has five transcriptions of some amazing drummers and classic performances that he has made accessible to our Patreon members. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. You can find that link on our website at (laughs) WorkingDrummer.net So not that long ago we had drummer and percussionist Clifford Kaufman on as a guest and he connected with Rakalam uh, many years ago as a student and at 75 years old and dealing with stage 4 cancer Clifford felt compelled to produce a documentary to introduce more people to Rakalam and his contribution to jazz in the 20 and the 21st century. So in this interview, Clifford joined me to co-host, and there was also a camera crew there. Hopefully we'll make it in the documentary about Rockalam. Rockalam is at a place in his life that he just wants to tell stories. And so I feel like this interview is a little bit different than our normal podcast interview. It was more of a time to turn the microphone on and let him speak and tell stories. And it was such an honor to have him in my home and interview him. The first Pat Metheny record was such an important record for me in my development as a musician and a drummer, and it was such an honor to meet Rock alum, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rock Bob Moses.
1: But you know what I noticed, because I did watch it once, is all the people, Joni Mitchell, all, all of them, they all talked about themselves. Hmm. It really wasn't about Jocko. It was all about themselves. Johnny Mitchell said, Well, I didn't have the right bass sound for my music and then and then Jocko came and and I said, No, I just talk about Jocko. Hmm. They asked me, I said, what I said, like uh, he said, what's it like to play with him? I said, It's like jumping out of an airplane on LSD naked at night. <laughs> <laughs> with a parachute. <laughs>
2: well, it's good yeah. it's good you have a parachute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: It was exciting. It was exciting. It was an adventure playing with him from the first note, you know. And he was young and unspoiled in a way too, you know, like a, a super athlete. Yeah. All right. So are we are we rolling? Is we're the
0: rolling, man. hello? While we're talking about documentaries, can we talk about your documentary? While I have both of you here, and kind of what your feelings are about. Well, you both. Well,
2: I I'm, I want to hear what you like. I, <laughs> so I don't I don't know where the, the idea came from. I mean, it was. I had this idea from just from knowing you when you were still in Quincy, in you know suburbs of Boston, that it would be really cool to film you because I felt like I was. We were talking earlier. I felt like more people should know you, like like just as a person, more people should know you. And then, like I remember, I interviewed you. I don't know, ten years ago, just my iPhone in your in your kitchen. And you were you were vocalizing and drumming on your body and the table, and I was just I was just thinking that's so cool like more people should see that, and so anyway so it was like this idea in the back of my head, and and then when you move closer, um, I don't even know I know I was talking about going to New Orleans, and I think you said at some point um, maybe I, maybe I'd like to go to New Orleans too or something like that, and then I called Johnny Vidakovich and was like hey what if. What if Rock Alam came to New Orleans, would you like to do something? And he's like, yeah. It, I don't even know how. And then it's like, let's, what do you think about making a film? And what do you think about a film about your life? And you were, you were like, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it depends on who it would be. And coming from you, I thought, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be nice and beautiful. Um, and, uh, you know, people, sometimes when I start talking about my history and all the amazing people that I've known um, – People say, man, you ought to write a book. I said, no, 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 no. That's much too much work. I don't want to write a book. But if you come with a camera, and I'll talk story about that. And um, and it's a good time to do it, to, to, to uh, you know, talk about the present, because I'm in the present, very much so, but also some of the amazing experiences that I had in the past that I'm starting to remember that usually I don't even think about. But let's face it, I'm getting closer to die, and it's a good time to... To, to remember and appreciate and be grateful, you know, Mingus coming over to my house and playing duets with me when I was 12 years old, you know, Rahsaan, uh, amazing time, you know, playing with him when I was just a kid and, and just being around these people. Now, the building I grew up at Max Roach, Abby Lincoln, uh, Art Blakey, Elvin Jones, and Rasan Roland Kirk all lived in that building. I see some wild peeps in the in the uh, elevator, you know. But usually I don't think about it, I don't look back. I'm really enjoying the now of it. Um, but, um, you know, I think, why not? You know, that's a good time to do it. If I'm ever gonna do it, I do it now, you know. Uh, and Clifford's a beautiful cat. And, you know, you say, I, I don't know where the idea comes from. I, I think all ideas come from God or from spirit, you know, like whatever word you want to put on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think that's really where all the ideas come from. And then it's up to you to, to decide is that a good idea or, or what do you what are you telling me,
2: man? What <laughs> do I want to do something with this idea? Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. So have you found a lot of joy in kind of revisiting these stories for this documentary? I'm finding joy in everything. But yeah,
1: yeah, I, I am enjoying it. and I'm hearing from people I haven't heard from in thirty, forty years. Uh all kind of people have been reaching out and been very kind and receiving a lot of love. Yeah, they're great. When I think about some of this stuff, it's like really extraordinary. I remember being in in Rahsan's band. Uh, when I was like sixteen, and I was really in way over my head, you know. And it was you know grown up strong black bass player. He didn't like me. I mean, he was, well, he, want, he was asking Rosson, why do you got this young white kid? He don't know how to, you know, why don't you get a brother, one of our guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And he, he wasn't wrong, by the way. I didn't disagree, He's probably right, but I remember Rosson said, well, he was just rolling, and he said, hey, man, uh, that drummer, that's my, that's, that's, that's my drummer. If you don't like it, I'll get another bass player motherfucker like that. Mm. And I, and, you know, I think that, that's kind of extraordinary that this great master defended me like that and gave me that kind of, uh, you know, encouragement. I remember the first tune I ever wrote, I brought it to Edgar Bateman. Now, Edgar Bateman, I'm glad I remembered his name because he's he's the greatest drummer I ever heard that most people don't know about. Edgar Bateman, I, I, I said it when I first heard him and I said it right up to when he died. The greatest drummer I've ever heard. And I heard Elvin and and Pete LaRocca and Max Roach and Roy Haynes and... You know Billy Higgins and Billy Hart and Attorney. Milford Graves and Bernard Purdy and all these great cats. You know um, Edgar Bateman was something else, and I remember um, what, was, what did I started talking about Edgar for. See, I'm, I got no. When you brain. brought
0: a tune. Oh yeah, I, I,
1: yeah. To his law, he had a band. He was rehearsing mm-hmm. uh, one of the first tunes I ever wrote. The band of Joe Henderson, young Joe Henderson, oh my gosh. Uh, who's also from Ohio, I think uh, originally, and. Uh, and Alan Shorter, Wayne's crazy brother on trumpet, I think Lonnie Liston Smith on piano, I forget who the bass were, but they were great. And they played my tune, I was 14 years old, and they liked it. They played like 20 minutes, they got deep into it, and that was like a validation. You know, oh man, maybe I should stick with music, maybe I should keep writing songs and stuff. You know, guys like that uh, played my tune and really enjoyed it, got into it. Um, so I had a lot of these kind of experiences where people... I was talking with the students at the workshop, but people... One guy asked me about mistakes, you know. Is it, how do you work with mistakes? I said, well, man, you know, I used to leave my vibes, my vibraphone, at Rasan's house. He lived on the lower... On the other side of the same building, but the other side of the building. And... Uh, He'd rehearse there, I mean, with heavy-duty guys. I remember one time was Andrew Hill on the piano, one of my heroes, Richard Davis on bass, Walter Perkins was a great drummer, swinging drummer. And they would let me sit in on vibes. You know, on drums, if you can ding ding, you can kind of fake your way through it. But on vibes, they're playing actual songs with chorus and beautiful standards, dearly beloved and things like that. I didn't know these tunes. We didn't have a real book. I don't have perfect pitch or anything. So I was absolutely faking it. I had no idea what I was doing, but they let me play.
0: Yeah,
1: And they knew I didn't know what I was doing. Um,
0: Why do you think they were letting you play?
1: I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I do know. Well, first of all, my method is so different from the school musicians who know a lot and they're still afraid to play. And I knew nothing and I wasn't afraid to play. I kept waiting for one of them to say, what are you doing? You know, put down them, them vibe sticks. Come back in, in <laughs> 10 years when you know something about music. And if they had said that, I would say, yeah, of course. Thank you. I'm sure. No problem, you know. But first of all, you know, I I would, um, I watched the drummer because I was playing vibe. And Walter Perkins had this big, uh, big, wide, and so on. My, my, my eighth note was right in his swing. So I'm swinging hard because he was swinging hard and matching the energy. He was playing, bang, bang, dang, dang, and I'm a dang, oh, ooh, the same energy, okay. And uh, which, by the way, you know, I just had these students and I'm playing boom, boom, bang, and they're playing. They're not matching the energy. They're not noticing the the comparable energy to what, play. What students are you talking about? The ones I had the last couple of days. Oh, the okay. young kids. Uh-huh. they were all talented. They're mm-hmm. good. They're all fine. They're nineteen years old. They're yeah, a long way to go. Um but anyway, I matched the energy. I just knew that. I followed the drummer. And then, you know, I learned, sort of if I hit a note that really was like, oh, no, no, no that's not the right one, uh, I would chromatic it down until I got to a, a, a better one. Or the other trick I learned was if I hit a wrong note, a wonky note, you know, I'd hit it again, like, like uh, no, I meant that shit. Not a mistake, you know. <laughs> but don't you like a little dissonance? <laughs> yes, dissonance <sir>. is cool, <laughs> isn't this hip? You know, I'd hit it two or three times. And and then, but the thing is, by the t- if I solo two or three choruses, by the third chorus I was hardly hitting any wrong notes. Because I could see during the A part, these notes work, but this one didn't. But then in the bridge, you might you, this one didn't work, but the new one, this other one did, and, and, I, and I was hardly hitting any wrong notes. But I was matching the energy, and I was swinging as hard because I got the swing from them. you know I was only totally riding on their level of swing. How old were you about this? 14, 15, something like that, but I didn't know anything. And w- you know we didn't have real books, anything like that. If we had a real book, I wouldn't have been able to read it. I didn't know chord symbols or anything. I was absolutely faking it. But they let me play and that's extraordinary. These are really the highest level cats and, and you know I kept waiting for one of them to say, hey you know, sit down, put that set of away they say, yeah, you sound good, Bobby. Yeah, Bobby, you sound good. You know, okay. So I, I'm not going to say no if I have an opportunity to play with people like that. <laughs> Shit, I'd be crazy not did to. Did you
0: know then how important these people were?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Sure.
0: How did you know that at 14?
1: Well, I think the first time I heard train, I was 12 or 13 or something like that. You know, I was. Okay. I, you know, I I lived in, when I was a kid, I lived in Queens, and that was not, that was more like playing sports and stuff, I was into playing sports, but my parents moved to Manhattan, partly because I told them if they didn't move to Manhattan, I was going to run away from home, (laughs) so (laughs) I was a hard kid, boy. I'm telling you, I'm mellow now, I'm cool now, but man, when I was young, yikes. Um, so they did, they moved to, to Manhattan, and, uh, and my, my parents knew a lot of the musicians, so they saw I was into the music, so they brought the people, people over. And uh, Mingus used to come over all the time, Song. the way I heard Edgar Bateman was Ken McIntyre, a great horn player, came with, he used to come to the house all the time, and he said, hey, you know, Bobby, they called me Bobby because I was just a kid, and I said, Bobby, I'm playing at the Five Spot, the original Five Spot, um, and I got a new band, I got some new tunes, it was a matinee, so they let me in. Because sometimes they didn't let in underage kids uh, during the week, cause of alcohol. But yeah, on, this, yeah. on the on the on uh, the on the Sunday at matinee, younger people could get in, and so um, so I said, yeah, I'll come down and see it. And you know. I I never was one of those peeps, like certain drummers, when they go to hear music, they sit right by the drums and they checking out. I was never like that. I always wanted to hear the overview, the whole band. And I never knew who would interest me the most. Might be the bass player, might be the piano player. You know, I didn't assume that the drums was the most interesting. Also, sitting in the back was good, or standing in the back, because if I wasn't into it, I could make a graceful exit. Whereas if you're sitting down front and you get up in the middle of the set and leave, it's a little weird. Oh, right, right. So... um, Anyway, I, I was watching Ken's band. Within like three minutes, I was sitting right by the drums. I never do that, but yeah. I, when I heard Edgar Bateman, I was like, "Oh my God, this guy's the greatest drummer I ever heard." And I and I went up to him afterwards. I said Edgar Bateman, "I said, you know, you're the greatest drummer I ever heard." And I told him, "I've heard Max Roach, Art Blakey, you know, Roy Haynes, Elvin, Pete LaRocca, all these." You're the greatest drummer, and, and I told, and I said, "Here's my name, uh, here's my name, and my telephone number." And I said, "If you're playing a gig, I want you to call me, and I will be there, and I'll help you set up the drums. I'll bring towels if you're sweating. I'll bring you tea, you know. I'll help out, but I want to be at every gig you do. I don't care where it is or what it is." And he was looking at me like, "Man, this this white boy is crazy, man." But we became very close, and he used to call me little brother. Mm. By the way, we did a record One of the many projects that I have to finish That's one reason why I'm trying to keep the- keep this body alive For a while to finish these projects. We did it in 206 Don't ask me why Long, boring story why it's not done yet But it's pretty close The double album and I want to do a nice package With a booklet and everything Tell the story about Edgar um, But he came through in 206 And we-, we did two days of recording But I had never played with him He was my mentor, my hero Um And uh, um, we did a day of duets and solos. I took all my solos out because they suffered in comparison so much to his Mm. and also because I'm alive to play more solos and he's not and everything of him is gold, you know. There was nothing to edit, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like Coltrane—you're not going to edit anything. But the thing with Coltrane, he's got a lot out. This guy doesn't. So I have the, the Edgar Bateman solos, three or four solo duos. The second day, a bunch of horn players and a bass player came, played some of my crazy melodies. So, um, and that was in August it, with no air conditioning. And Edgar also—he was, I think I was—that was two oh six. I think it was I was fifty-five, and he was seventy-seven. And he was in way better shape than me. He used to do 400 push-ups a day at age 77. At the
0: same time? <laughs> All at once?
1: <laughs> one at a time, yeah. You know. um, um, but one day, in one day. And he never drank or smoked. I mean, he was really strong yeah. and uh, clean. And uh, he was a hunchback too, and also asthmatic. He had a lot going against him, but boy, nobody played the drums like him. So that's a record that I got to finish. The title will be um, "Creative Infinity and Love Eternal." Edgar Bateman and Rockalot Bob Moses, you know. And uh, that's one of many of my most important projects. That uh, that one i like to publicize too. Like talk to some of the drum magazines and do some interviews about. It. I never. Hustle my stuff because I have like no hustle chops whatsoever. You
0: but. got a team around you now.
1: Yeah, that's true. I got got my Amazon <laughs> film crew over here. <laughs> Jeff Coffin is really great with that, like promoting and using the internet and all the the tech stuff. You, you know, have computer. a website. And, I have a website now. Yeah. So anyway, Edgar Bateman. That's I'm glad that he got mentioned. You know, um, there's a few YouTube clips of him uh, playing. Uh, one from the early days, around the time that I knew him, which was. Uh, I think it's um, Ted Curson, uh, Booker Irvin, you know Booker Irvin, the saxophone player. Ted Curson, Pony Poindexter, Nathan Davis, um, Kenny Drew Jr. Jimmy Woody on bass, and Edgar, and they were playing that tune. And it's burning, he looks like not even doing anything. He's so relaxed. And there's a little solo, and his solo is like unbelievable. man. There's one from right before he died uh, in Philly, at a jam session that starts in the middle of the solo, and that's, that's incredible, like two minutes of solo, and then at the end the band comes back in. For the head, and and that stuff is really the tip of the iceberg of how great he was. But if you if you watch him, you'll get a t- uh, a sense of it. You know, a very special, very unusual person, man. You know, he taught him. He, he learned Hebrew. The guy was speaking That's right. Hebrew. I remember you saying that. Yeah. That ain't easy. Mm. No, so I don't speak Hebrew. Yeah, I don't speak Hebrew either. Not a <laughs> word. No.
0: Can I ask you about this experience with these greats and your feeling about inspiration over imitation?
1: Well, yeah, you know, it, if you want to have anything to contribute to music, you got to look inward, you know, because um, that's what all the great people did. No, Nobody played the piano like McCoy Tyner before McCoy Tyner. Nobody played the piano like Bill Evans before Bill. Nobody played the drums like Ed, Elvin Jones. Still nobody has played the drums yeah. like Elvin Jones. But um, so, you know, you... you um, you honor the people who inspire you by not stealing their their stuff, their innovations. Yeah. It's it's unethical for one for one. I'm not, by the way, nobody has to agree, and many won't agree or understand what I'm saying. But I put it out there, what I know to be true. You know, it's unethical. Uh, one and it's also a disempowerment to the individual, because when you do that, when you imitate these people, a lot of people now they're a pastiche of their favorite three or four people or the uh, You're saying, basically, I have nothing. I have no vision. I'm not a a genius. I have no original. I have to take it from these dead, usually dead uh, past masters. And that, first of all, that's not true, especially when I see like 20-year-old kids doing that. It's like you've given up before you even start. Mm. You don't know what you have. You don't know what your vision is. You don't even know how to cook or make love yet. You know, you got a lot to learn. And, you know, but they're looking at all the other people's music. It's not theirs. And they didn't live it. That's a, that's very important. You need to live the music. We're talking about Abby Lincoln. You know, she gave me, it was very close, and remained close until she passed. She gave me one of her albums. It was really quite beautiful. Um, and, um, she had Bobby Hutchison on marimba. I love the marimba. Mostly her compositions, but they did they did a version of this beautiful old jazz ballad, um, Midnight Sun. Mm-hmm. Your lips are like a red and ruby chalice. Bo-bo-be-ba-bo-wee-ah. It's, it's gorgeous. And this young trumpet player took a beautiful, creamy... Trumpet solo on this thing, you know, the ballad jazz, beautiful, creamy sound and mm-hmm. everything. And, and I remember talking to her. I said, well, Abby, you know, I call her Amanata. That was her African name. I said, Amanata. I said, you know, first of all, be- well, thank you for the beautiful CD. I love it. And that young trumpet player really sounds good on the ballad. This is her words. I'm not going to mention his name. It's not important because a lot of people do it. She said, yeah, but Bobby, his sound, too close to Clifford Brown. You don't do that. You don't take somebody's sound. Wow. And she said, I don't hate him, but if I knew that, I never would have called him on my record. And I called it, I was praising the guy because he really did sound beautiful. And, uh, but then, because I hadn't listened to Clifford Brown in 25 years. I forgot. I went back and put a Clifford Brown playing a ballad. It was very close, like uncomfortably close. Now, you have to be a hell of a musician to imitate Clifford Brown, that's for sure. What makes it even more cynical to me, or I don't know if that's the right word, was I heard the same trumpet player on another record that was more like funky fusion record. He sounded like Miles. Yeah. So he could imitate all these great people, but he, he, he will never be like Miles, Clifford Brown, Louis Armstrong, one of a kind, Don Cherry, one of a kind. Because he's, you know, it's like... Uh, It's like a proctological exam of these old dead uh, uh, masters. (laughs) So
2: how how does one not take from those but still have their presence be a part of their development without stealing?
1: Well, you know, it's... You know, if I was a piano player, you know, I listen to Bill Evans, and there's this lyricism, this singing quality, that's playing through the bar line. Okay, I'll, use, I'll do that. I'm not going to take his chords or his lines or anything like that, but just the idea of maybe playing through the thing. You know, so
2: not exact imitation, but not even
1: co- any imitation.
2: So more of a vibe or something like that. Uh, the
1: concept, you know, concept. concept yeah. You know mm-hmm. that that would be. You know, one thing I got from Max Roach, um, uh, drummers might be interested in this, but. Um, with all due respect to great Dave Brubeck, who wrote some a couple of beautiful tunes, and great Joe Morello, uh, a genius drummer. You know, I always thought when they did that take five, that five, it was a little corny to me. And the problem for me was they were hitting one every bar, you know, boom, to three, good for five, boom, good boom. And I thought, no, that doesn't work for me. You know, it's. And then I saw Max, and he was playing something in seven, right? but he had the hat you know words, he made a two bar form so it wasn't odd it was even but yeah. so he was going yeah. I did a montuno like that ding ba oh that's seven but people, I play that and dance, and people dance into it. <laughs> yeah. And, and so making a two bar phrase out of it makes it even, makes it swing more. If I was playing five four instead of going, you can hit one, but not one every bar. If you're playing four four and the drummer goes, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, yep. you got you better get a new drummer. I think
0: Vinny does that on, what, seven days? Yeah, he plays... He plays And he plays three, that yeah. and, and, in right. and seven, but it's over, and so it turns out to be even, you know? And it's yeah, it's natural. Those, when you
1: play 4-4, yeah, four, exactly. four,
0: you don't want to play a one-bar phrase. <laughs> you can hit one, but you hit one every two
1: bars. <laughs> one, back, to two, boom, and boom. You don't want to yeah. go one, bong, that's right. terrible. Right. So if I was doing five, I'd say, like, <laughs> that's five. It's ten, really. It's bada, 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 but yeah. It's much more. So that's something I got from Max. You know, we talk about takings, but that, that's not imitating Max, you know. There's one thing I want to say about that, actually, because here I was growing up uh, in the same building with these great drummers, you know. And um, listen, I love Max, uh, you know, my hero, my dad. My, he's like my musical dad in a way. Uh, but I never wanted to play like him. I loved Art Blakey, but I never wanted to play like him either. But Elvin, I kind of did. When I heard Elvin, I said, damn, that's that's how a drum should sound. But you know, I've made 30 records on Rock Alarm Records. I think I have some in the car. I'll lay some on you if That'd you want. Amazing. Um, uh, you've heard a bunch of them. Does any of it sound like Elvin? I don't think so. Not at all.
2: But you do come from the lineage, which what, well, does, that, what does that mean? You are, You are from that lineage in some ways. Well, you know, my
1: favorite drummers that what I could, thought was the, for my taste for the greatest drummer was Coltrane's drummers. So that was Roy Haynes, uh Pete LaRocca's first one, uh, Elvin, uh, Roy Haynes, and Rashid, and uh, Edgar Bateman also played with Train. Mm. Wow. So they were like, they're my favorite drummers. So um, yeah, and also the spiritual nature of Coltrane uh, affects your drumming. So you know, I would say you know. I'm in the line of the uh, you know the uh, you know lineage of, uh, of the Elvin Rashid um, kind of lineage, but I don't play like either of them.
2: But what what does it mean to be in the lineage of them?
1: <laughs> That's a good question, man. I don't know if I can put that into words. Yeah, I am kind of sleepy. Does that does probably.
2: that does that mean that there's <laughs> that there's some of the some of the same language? Does it mean that or no no no? It's no, not no, that at no, all.
1: No 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 no. no.
2: No. But but you but if you were playing with those drummers, you would be able to communicate in a way that maybe other people wouldn't be able to communicate.
1: Yeah, well, I never got to play with uh, Elvin or Rashid. Although to CG, my teacher was trying to organize a date with didn't me. Did you play a bottle? Rashid.
2: Didn't you play a bottle on a? Uh, Raslan Roland Kirk session. That, yeah, that's right. No, I broke a
1: bottle <laughs> before fair. the before the band came in. <laughs> he wa- he had a harmonic and he wanted the, the idea was he hit this note and it broke glass. You know, yeah. and Elvin a, was the drummer on that. Session, Elvin they're... was the drummer on that, and, and that's. So you sort of play with him. Yeah, I sort of play with him. You know, I played orchestral chimes on
0: one tune, but that's not like playing the drums. You know, how um, did vibes inform your playing on the drum set? Playing your experience playing vibes.
1: Well, you know, I mean any drummer should be down with melody just like any melody player should be down with drums and rhythm you know uh, if you're a, a a vibes player that don't know drums you're not going to be a very good uh, vibes player if you're a drummer who don't know melody you're not going to be a very good drummer yeah it's simple you know you need you need to to understand all of that and also uh, your phrasing comes from melodies you know yeah the phrasing of the drums comes from the melody that you're playing and i think you know so, uh, you know, I never fought a separation. The first gigs I ever did was on vibes, playing with these Latin guys, with these por- crazy Puerto Ricans in the Bronx. Eight sets a night we'd play for. Jesus. Uh, yeah, f- uh, 50 minutes on, 10 minutes off. Last set would be would end at 10 to 5 in the morning. And they'd still be like drunken, we call them balacho, that I mean like really drunk guys. Go, hey, where you going, man? Come on, the party's just starting. We want to <laughs> dance. <laughs> we just played eight sets. Go home. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I learned a lot. I had a lot of fun playing them guys. So, um, I don't know. What, what was it? You had a good question. Well, it was just forgot. about
2: the lineage, and then and then you okay. did you ask something about? Well, I oh, derailed goodbye. your question. No, no, you didn't derail. <laughs> yeah, lineage, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, was just, I was just if you're not if you're not taking from someone directly, so maybe it's a conceptual lineage or something like that.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. You
2: know, that, or just, yeah. a, just a way a way. it could be a way of being.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'm not even, well, you know, Tosigi is my Coltrane, you know. Elvin had Coltrane uh, as a leader. Rashid had Coltrane as a leader. Roy Haynes had Coltrane. I have Tosigi as a leader. And they're they're the two closest, in a way, of musicians that I know. The only person I could compare to Tosigi is Train, even though they're very different, you know. Um, So I think, yeah, that's a little bit of it. You know who I say is definitely in that lineage and he's a little more close to these guys than I am. But you are, I mean I am playing like Rashid or or Elvin. Um is Kiermeier? He's a great drummer too, Franklin Kiermeier. He's definitely in the Elvin, Rashid, and he made some records with Pharaoh Saunders. He's a he's a great drummer. And we played I love playing with several drummers. We're going to do that tomorrow. Um, uh, uh he did a record uh um we did a record with Tosigi, which I think is the most powerful of any record I've ever been on or heard. It's called Alpha Nebula, and that's me and Kiermaier playing mm. on that. And I needed Kiermaier because the energy that Tosigi was, was hitting, I, I couldn't even match it on the drum. So I could take a break, and I knew somebody else was going to keep, keep, keep it going, so I could let him fill it up and then come back in, and, and he's, a, he's a great drummer, too. And I've been in touch with him recently by Facebook. And we talk about doing a duo record. There's all these great percussionists who want to do something with me. And I'm hoping, again, I'm hoping I keep the, the body alive. There's a guy named Santazo, Andre, Andrea Santazo, Italian cat. He He's a visionary percussionist. You should just see his setup, man. It's like all these gongs and crazy interesting sounds and stuff. Uh, anyway, so, and I love the percussionists like that who've completely uh, invented their own, stuff too. I got a lot of inspiration from the European drummers, but I, I you know, I didn't appreciate them at first. When I first went to Europe in 1968, I saw these drummers had completely different drum sets. Cuz you know, the American drum set was almost always the same, jazz, drum, you know, bass drum, snare drum, rack tom or two, floor tom, cymbal, second cymbal, hi-hat. Yeah. Right? And I got over there, and people had, you know, triangular gongs, and you know, tiny little hi hats, and the snare drum was like a, a field drum, and the tom tom was in the middle. They would just make these sound sculptures, you know. Yeah. And and at first, you know, I was just a kid then too, but I, you know, I don't even know if I appreciated their playing so much, but I was I was very interested to, in that. It was like hmm. And it took me about twenty years later before um, I said, yeah. I, you know, I'm going to make my own drum set, and if you, you know, later we'll swap emails. I will show you pictures of my set at home. I've seen it. I've oh, you see seen, it. Yeah, okay. I've seen yeah it, I've it seen doesn't it. resemble. Yeah, that's amazing. Any any other drum set. So I, you know, I went there. I let my own, um, you know, I realized it so that I had been lazy up to a certain point that that, um, you know, I. Uh, uh, I kind of accepted how everybody did it. So everybody does it like that, I'll do it like that. And I said, no, 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 no. That's lazy. I got to figure my own my own way. And uh, one, one person who was very instrumental, and I'm glad to be able to mention him, he just he passed just a, a few months ago, was Peter, Peter Zellman. You know his music, Pete Zellman? I don't.
2: It's, it's like he's not from this planet.
1: Exactly. He's like alien intelligence. Like he's like mean. something else. And I, when I heard him, I said, oh my God, I got to rethink this. I said, I, I'm going to start from zero. I'm gonna go back to the beginning. And I was like 40-something years old already, and I said, no, 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 this is, I've been lazy when I heard him. And there's nothing from him, by the way, that I could ever imitate. Anyway, it's way over my head. But just the, the it was so different and so incredible, what he was doing, and so unique. Um, and I had a nice, you know, a relation with him until, until he passed. I'm I'm still in relation, I talked to his uh, his wife, his, was a very, very sweet, strong woman, Cheryl. And um, Pete was living in England, in London and stuff, but uh, when he when he passed, or outside of London and stuff. But uh, you know, Billy Martin, the great drummer, Billy Martin yeah. gave me a, a cassette of a, a Zellman. And I, and I heard it, I couldn't believe it, man. I was like, oh my God, this guy, wow. I mean, I was so grateful that somebody had just, done this, done this work that he'd done, you know, it's like, uh, what an addition to the world, like really adding something to the world that didn't exist before. Mm, so. okay. and, um, and won't again either, because nobody's gonna play what he does. Kenwood Denard can kind of do some of it, but he's a genius too. Um, but, um, so anyway, I, I said, I gotta talk to this guy. And I didn't know, I just guessed. I said, well, anybody playing like that, where does he live? Probably lives in New York. I'm going to guess New York. So I literally called up that New York Information, said, do you have a, you have a, a number for Pete Zellman? And they had like 500 Zeldmans, but only one Pete. And they gave me the number. And I called the number. And, and he said, hello? I said, is this Pete Zeldman? He said, yeah. I said, is this, is this the drummer, Pete Zellman? He said, yeah. I said, <laughs> well, okay. I said, well, this, this is Bob Moses. I don't know if I was rock alarm yet in those days. I said, this is Bob Moses. And he goes, oh yeah, I know you, blah, 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 you know. And I said, well, I gotta tell you, I heard this record, which by the way was called Other Not Elsewhere, which is a great title because he's really other, but he's not elsewhere, he's here. But he's from somewhere else, but he's here. He's other, Like again, like alien intention, uh, uh, intelligence. And uh, and I said, man, I just have to thank you. You're, what I heard this solo, it was all solo, no overdubs, nothing, but it sounds like five people. At times, Zeldman. Yeah. and he puts on the on the liner notes because people don't believe it. There's no overdubs or sequencing. This I played this all live, and later I saw him do it. He had eight foot pedals. He was doing one rhythm with this side of his foot, the other rhythm with oh. with that side of his foot. I mean, it, it, it's it's insane. But and you know, it's it, I, later I found out it was highly mathematical, but it's also funky. It's also grooving. It's like you know, it's anyway. He's so I, you know, I said, man, look, I'm. Uh, I got to tell you, I just want to thank you, because hearing your drumming changed my life. And I'm I'm going back to the beginning, thanks to you. So I just want to say thank you for doing this great work. I'm, I was really moved and inspired by it. And, and he started crying on the phone. He said, he, said, wow. he said, no drummer ever called him to say that. I was the only guy that called him to <laughs> say that. Which seemed to me no big deal, but apparently... It was.
0: Well, you know. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing hearing this and him. yeah yeah, Yeah, check him out on YouTube. I, I want to ask you about this idea of seeing or hearing someone for the first time. That is so amazing and processing all of this. And now in an age of information, we can access all this information and see people play and hear people play. And when you're trying to make a living and you're trying to grow as a musician – you're struggling. Those
1: might be those might be
0: two opposite. This is why you're. This is why I need to ask you this question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so overwhelming this internal struggle that we have with our ability to be confident in ourselves and yet feel like everyone is doing something that we're not doing. What advice would you have for the young player that is looking to grow as a musician and? Feel confident in their voice and their creativity, developing their own voice.
1: Well, you know, my only my only uh, advice to any musician is just to be real. Not everybody is meant to be a creative improviser. Some people they they write a beautiful song and they go out and play that song every night, more yep. or less the same way, and that's what they should do. Mm-hmm. I just saw Matheny. You know, he came through. I hadn't seen him in years. You know, and is very prepared. You know, he had finishes, He had eight different guitars. He finishes one. The roadie brings out the next one, and and uh, that's great. That's perfect for him because he's a composer, not just a great guitar player. He's a composer, and it's a very beautifully thought out show. You know how it goes from one thing to another and yeah. stuff. It's totally prepared. And it, but it struck me that you know I went a completely other direction, which is nothing prepared. You know, but that's why he gets 2,000, 3,000 people in the audience and I get 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. So it's all what you're trying to do. Yeah. I never tell people they should play free or be more creative or anything like that. I just say be yourself. Be real to who you are. If your thing is to play some backbeat or play some country music and that's really who you are, do that and do it well. And uh, don't apologize for it. Yeah. You know, if, you, if your thing is to rehearse it all and know it before you play, well, that's a safer way to sound good because you're working it out, it's all worked out, it's practiced, you've, you've written it, you've rehearsed it, and so the way I do it, it's more risky, but I'm not worried about it. Yeah. I always say it's a good thing that uh, musicians are not doctors, because we'd, we'd be killing people all the time with, all that, with making a mistake. If we were surgeons, you know, might be good for the overpopulation problem on the, on the earth. <laughs> I, I love when I make Megan laugh. Uh, be, <laughs> it's good you make the camera person laugh, you know. Um, Okay, there was something that I wanted to extract or extrapolate. That's a good word for a high school dropout. (laughs) Um, You know, there was a point where I looked at my artwork, my painting, relative to my drumming. Same with my piano playing, by the way, too. This is similar. I I wrote this in the—I did one record where I play piano. I don't play drums at all. I had a great drummer uh, play, uh, Sarubov, Tony Falco, plays, is fantastic. He's a, he's a Rashid Elvin level drummer. That's not me.
2: the only album of yours where you don't play drums, though, right? Billy that's Hart right. plays. Billy Hart also plays. Yeah,
1: that's true. I'm bittersweet yeah. in the ozone. Yeah, I, if I could get somebody to do it better than me, but this one uh, I'll use them. I just want to make great music. Um, but this one, you know, I just want I wanted to play piano, and I realized, and the same with my my painting. I thought uh, I'll use the painting as a better illustration, but it's the same with the piano. I never was trying to be a professional artist. Mm. I never was trying to be a professional painter or art, or you know visual artist. As a drummer I kind of was. I was trying to be a professional. So if you're trying to be a professional you feel a certain obligation to learn the givens. You know, it depends on the gig. You know, you might be oh this is a kind of Miles tune, you got to play a little bit like Tony Williams, you know. If this is kind of a funk fusion thing you might want to Try your best to play like Steve Gadd. It won't be as good, but you know he. Is, is, you know I remember when Bossa Nova came out to the United States and he did some gigs. I got to learn how to play a Bossa Nova because it might come up on the gig. Yeah. Um, I remember that fast tempos used to kick my butt, so I'd practice fast tempo because it might come up on the gig. I'd be at home, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I work on that. So all these professional requirements, in a way, like yeah. an obligation, and I realized that's what. Why my drumming? I looked at my artwork, I said, it's more beautiful, it's more original, and it's more sprung than my drumming. And so the question is, why is that? And the answer was, because I was trying to be a professional drummer, not trying to be a professional artist. So at that point, I said, you know what? Let me make my drumming more like my art, because I ain't getting any gigs anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm, I'm, can I, I'm. Can
2: I stop you? Real quick? Yeah. So there, there was a time where you were getting a lot of gigs
1: not never a lot but well, i I, was, I, it, I would get a gig i mean you were so how
2: how how much was were you playing with Gary Burton you I mean you were his drummer for a long time and you were going to europe and i have the impression that it was, seems like a lot of gigs but maybe it wasn't
1: well, probably with him was about the most, you know. But we, I mean, we'd go on a tour and maybe do twenty or twenty-five gigs, so that was cool. But then we wouldn't do things for months e- either. So uh,
2: and you weren't playing in town, or you you were you in New York at that point, or were you in Boston?
1: It depends on when I was. Yeah. I was with Gary Burton like three different times, you know. Mm. I, I guess I was a good enough drummer because he hired me back, but we weren't really necessarily compatible as people. Mm. So I never lasted too long. The last time I was actually in a band was Steve Kuhn, and that was 80s. And so I've been deemed by people, and I'm grateful for it. First I was like, oh gee, I had nobody calling me for a gig, and now, I'm, uh, not even now, but it's been a while. I was like, oh man, that's wonderful, that's great. Because <laughs> um, it enables me to create. I don't need to worry about doing the same thing, or being conservative, or, or anything, or learning the charts, or rehearsing, or any of that stuff. Um,
2: well, and you you had you had a kid, you had Raphael, and you and that's when you started teaching at New, New England Conservatory. Is that right?
1: I think I was there a little before that. He was born in '85, and uh, I think I started '82 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I mean, I got I got gigs occasionally, and sometimes um, really creative gigs where I could play free. I was never against doing like a wedding gig or something. I never looked down on it. Yeah, and I would do my best to do it. I used to do a gig in Boston, not that long ago. Before I left, it was like a, a dinner club where mm. people ate, and and I played with brushes the whole time. I didn't play any free. I don't think
2: I've ever seen you play with brushes.
1: I hardly do, and and uh, uh, you know, uh, and we and I played very simple, but people were eating literally like uh, ten feet away, or not, you know, and uh, I did the gig as best I can. Whenever I. Do it's very rare that I get actually get a gig playing quote, quote, normal music. I do my best not to mess it up and not to try to change it to something that it's not because that wouldn't be loving and or supportive. So I can play normal music. I can be... I, you know, I have evidence of records. I, I I found one with this singer, Nancy Monroe. Man, playing standard. It's beautiful. David, Eddie Gomez on bass. I mean, you know. So... There's one that never came out, Garzón did a standards, George Garzón with Kuhn on piano and Eddie Gomez playing. And it's swinging hard, man. So, you know, I could play inside music. Um, but I noticed, too, now that I've been going back and listening to some of the earlier stuff, which was for, for a lot of it very form-oriented, bar lines, and yeah. um, how free I was with that. And and how freely we played within the forms, so I think the 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 the, uh, the, the predilection or or um, the, the the calling to to be free was always there, and I played free when I was really a kid too. But I also felt like nah, i Maybe I don't deserve it yet. I got to go back and learn the more basic stuff. I got to make sure I'm solid on certain things. But I tried it, you know. I I I got some stuff, and when I hear that. I can hear the roots of how I play now. I, so I think the roots of of being free is very have always been there. Yeah. But you think about it, man. Rhythm is infinite. Uh, you know, and people play as creative. All these great music, they play the same four or five rhythms. Mm-hmm. You know, Memphis, it's only two. It's like <laughs> boom, back, boom, boom, back, boom, bat, Or ding, 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 ding. That's about it. And, uh, you know, I, a guy came over to my house. I was playing some six. I wasn't playing free because I figured his head would explode. So I played <laughs> some six, you know, And which, by the way, that's my core groove is a six. It's kind of like that. Do 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 one, two, three, four, five, I say. He looked at me like, a, like I was from a different planet. He couldn't have even imagine not being in four or four, you know. So, but a, but you know the two rhythms they play, they play the hell out of it. So it's cool, but I I, I see rhythm is infinite, man. Rhythm is. Another time be Whoa, that's all rhythm. Yeah, when, when rhythm he... is rhythm is infinite, and it's good for people to realize that instead of locking into the. I do think it's good to learn these basic fundamental rhythms of swing, funk, six-eight. Isn't that playing
0: free? Is to be able to lock into that stuff. What's that? Being able to play free means being able to play within those rhythms. Well, when uh, you you want to.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I think for the most part, um, the best free players are people who are masters of different culture, music, genres, different things like that. That's better said. The Coltrane would play, who could play a jazz ballad or swing harder than Coltrane, or Pharoah Sanders or Chisiji, for that matter, playing standards. But there are exceptions to the rule, too. This young lady who played saxophone, Zoe, Zoe Amba, she's Tennessee, mm. she's from East Tennessee. I don't think she ever played standards or funk. She just went right into the Albert Eyler type of stuff, and she's great, she's really strong. Yeah. So there's always uh, exceptions to the rule, but I think... Yeah, generally, uh playing free or rubato, I think that's the hardest thing to do. To be cohesive, to tell a story from zero. The the uh, most of the records I do now, and I think it'll be that way when we record tomorrow with with Hain and and Margot, uh probably, you know. Um I don't think you bought any charts, did you? No. I hope not. I ha- might have to get you get out of here. <laughs> we
2: were uh, earlier and he, yeah. yeah. But um yeah, you
1: know when it when it's done well, and we'll see. I, I, I'm confident. I, you know, I don't even know they're playing that well. I heard a little bit of it. I, I, enough that I invited them to come and play. I thought they both got something strong going. Yeah. Um, but when it's done really well, it sounds completely composed. And we're going from zero. We got nothing. We don't talk about it. We just boom. And uh, you know, not always like that because it might take a minute to get the 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 hookup of all the people to really tune in and so those ones you don't put out on a record you know
0: <laughs> i love the your description of discovering about your painting and that journey and seeing how not pursuing painting as a vocation kind of allowed it to be free allowed Well, to i looked there.
1: inward yeah i only looked in if you see my paintings and if you go to my website i got yeah. a bunch of them up there
0: i see your album covers and no, mostly those. my paintings yeah, yeah. right
1: um they don't look like anybody's paintings and there's no school of art that you, there's not, you know, there's modern art, there's cubism, there's this, there's all these different schools. No, and I don't sign them because for me they come from spirit anyway, but also there's no need because there's nobody else, nobody else would do that,
0: it's obviously me. Did that discovery about painting and saying, I want my drumming to sound like this, was there a shift in, in your playing?
2: Yeah, definitely. When, when did you decide that you... You know, you know, said you were working on being a professional. You were working on the things a professional should. When did that shift happen where you decided you wanted to liberate yourself creatively with the drums or, or music? Yeah,
1: well, um, yeah, that's a good question, too. You know, chronology is really my worst... Or, I mean,
2: it not necessarily but, uh, when exactly did it happen, more like <laughs> like what was going on. Like yeah. like And also, like, what was going on in your life during that time?
1: Well, you know, I think also... Um, um, getting the name Rock Alarm from Tasiji from my teacher—I'd
0: love to hear
2: about
1: was that. Was a big turning point because uh, then I no longer was stuck in Bob Moses anymore. Um, or, you know, uh, um, I still had to deal with the karma of Bob Moses, but it was more about—I um, inst- uh, say—instead uh, of karma wallowing, which is what most humans do, musicians being human uh, for the most part. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, my music is about karma burning. In other words, transcending your karma, getting beyond your karma, getting beyond your programs, getting beyond your patterns, getting beyond your tendencies, getting beyond all your preconceptions. It's not easy, you know, it's not easy. So um, I became more rock alarm. And I noticed that my music, even though, was, like I say, it became more original, it was also less personal in a way. Because most people's music is where they've been, you know, and who they studied with and who they heard, and my music now is it's more like nature, you know, it's more like the it's not personal. When the sun shines, it, sun shi- it shines on everybody. When the monsoon comes, it soaks everybody. It doesn't care if you're a nice person or an, or a, a not so nice person. When the tsunami comes, it takes er- it takes everybody. Yeah. So the, the, I noticed my music more like nature, and and uh, you know. I think when I was living in Quincy, one of my biggest influences was this tree. It was right on the corner of the, of the block. I, I, had a, up, I had a porch on my upstairs, uh, outside my bedroom. I, whenever the weather was nice, I used to meditate on the porch you know, and look at the sky. I love that. But when the, sometimes the wind would be high, high strong wind, 40, 50 mile an hour wind. And that tree was like, that was, it was like a 100 Rashid Ali's. But gentle, man. I'd like to drum like that, you know. And the, uh, and the tree, you know, the tree, the is not going to get five stars in downbeat, you know. You know what I mean? It's, it's and they're not going. Or, or, or if you look, if you look at the sky and you see the sunset, what art or painting is better than that? But yeah. nobody signs it, and no egotistic artist saying, "Oh, I painted that." You know, it's more like nature. You know, you let the uh... so that's how my drumming has become uh, more more like nature and less personal, ironically or, or uh, paradoxically. That's a good word for it. So, so was
2: nice so before that? Was there <laughs> was there a lot was there a lot of attachment? Was there a lot of pain connected with music for you, or was it always a free thing for you? Even though you were playing forms.
1: Well, there was a lot of pain in my life. Man, music was just part of my life. Man, I was I was suffering in music, in relationships, financially, uh, you know, so materially, and um, that's when I went to, to CG for uh, for sp- finally. I mean, I could have gone to him twenty years earlier, but I wasn't ready, and he. Being a true spiritual master never said you should come to me. I could help you. I could tell you some stuff. He waited patiently for about twenty years. When I first, I just wanted to play with him. That was it. Any time we could play, I would play. I'd go anywhere to play with him. I didn't care if it paid or didn't pay or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, when I was really in my worst period of uh, what I call self uh, self suffocation, I said, you know, Bapu, we call him Bapu, Bapuji. I said, Bapu, I just want to come and sit. No drums, no guitar this time. We, we, I just want to sit. I know you got something for me. And I need some help. And he said yes. And I remember the first time, I think I was sitting for 18 hours straight. And I was finally like falling over. He was still sitting ramrod straight, but relaxed. I finally said... I, I think you need to lay down a little bit. I say, yeah. You know, he put out a futon. I laid down. Two hours later, he's like, bing. Like, it's like, like spiritual boot camp. You know, it's like, boom. And, and he worked me. And that, was, that day was a turning point. Shortly after that, I got the name Rakalam, you know.
2: What, what, became, what started to change in your life when you, after you sat with him?
1: Well, I, one of the most basic principles of spiritual practice is that the cause of all suffering is the self, so that and and that's uh, that's a major uh you know once you understand that you stop blaming the world you don't blame trump you don't blame uh, putin you don't blame anybody but yourself if you're suffering it's it's your fault so i always joke about it you know, it's good news and the bad news oh man <laughs> i'm the asshole that's causing all the problem but i'm also the one who can fix it yeah. and we talk about this all the time i was at the workshop how mu- how much i love being old you know and and because I, you know I you can choose to be happy. you can choose to be free. That's a choice
0: yeah
1: and I choose to be happy and I choose to be free
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it took me a while to learn that you know that it's within my power to do that I, I had a rough relationship with my dad tosiji came and healed it. He's the only one who could have done it wow. and I told Tasiji I said, well, the guy pushes all my buttons, my dad, you know. <laughs> see, he said, well, get re- you have no buttons anymore. Get re- you're buttonless now. I said, okay. It was that simple. Buttonless. <laughs> and, and, yeah, buttonless, <laughs> which is a good way to be, actually. You know. And, um, you know, and then my dad would still say some stuff that in the past would have pissed me off. And I just laughed and, lo- and gave him love in return. And no, no I, it, I had no buttons after that. And my re- last few years of my dad's life was very sweet and very loving, and we had forty years of like a, a knocking heads, very contentious, um, um, a, a negative rela- uh, relation. I mean, I loved him because he's my dad, but in a way, I didn't like him. You know how you could, that could be, right? And um, and we were always button heads. My mom and me were cool from the get, but me and my dad, no. But at the end, we were. And I got rid of my buttons. To see he said, yeah, you don't have any buttons. No buttons. Forget forget that. You know. So, um, you know, so that, that was part of it. I realized that I was causing all the, the, all the problems, you know, and I stopped doing that little by little. I, I, you know, people, musicians tell road stories, you know, oh, God, I went on this tour, this happened, this happened and stuff. And, you know, they get in a circle and they swap stories when I would tell my stories, nobody would say a word after that. They'd say, that's the worst shit I ever heard. I got nothing compared to that. <laughs> so I, you know, I almost took it was, you know that character in the Bible, Job? Right? I was Job times 10. Oh my. I was Jobed out. I was Max, Job Max, super max, you know. And and I actually remember I used to tell these stories. I took almost a perverse pride in having the, the worst luck of anybody. I stopped doing that because when you retell it, you're reliving it. You're stuck in it. Yeah. And now, anything that happened, even my car broke down on the way to Nashville when I was trying, and my tooth was killing me and I was on my way to the dentist. And I was about 40 miles outside of Memphis. I really hadn't gone that far. And I had a car, and it was hot, man. You know, it was a hot day. And uh, I pulled off right before the exit and it was right under the... The billboard of the Tina Turner Museum. <laughs> so I called the AAA guy and I said, uh, and he said, Where are you? I said, I'm right under the poster of Tina Turner, who I love Tina Turner. So I'm <laughs> so I'm hanging out with Tina Turner, waiting for the AAA cup to, uh, to truck. So, you know, people be, Oh God, my car died. But I was like, Yeah, but I wound up uh, it died in the perfect place. That's you know? that's
2: like when I was heading to Memphis to see you. I my car died and I, it was a beautiful pasture and yeah, and so I just walked around and played the harmonica. For there, the you go.
1: you got, there you go, you got, you go. So I, my, my, you know, my. I have a new mantra that I say, not that new, but it's been for a while now. I say, "Gonna be goo. Gonna be goo. Hey, whatever it is, gonna be good." Yeah. Alam, you're going in front of the firing squad tomorrow. Hey, gonna be goo. <laughs> direct, direct passage to God, the Spirit. You know, is
0: the definition of rakhalam the inaudible sound of the invisible sun? That's correct, sir. How do you know? How do people know these things? Eh? Yeah, Tusi mean,
1: gave me that name. That's a he. That's a heavy one. He gave me a deep one. I'm still trying to live up to that name.
2: What does that mean? But to at you? the
1: top, at the when I'm playing at my best, I can hear that.
2: What? what, what can you? That. Can you describe it all? What that means to other people?
1: No, no, because if you think you understand it, you don't understand it. Mm.
2: It's kind of ununderstandable. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: You feel it. You know what? It, you know what it means, uh, but not. From the uh, rational mind, see? But, you know, I get a sense of it, an audible sound. Silence is silence that you don't hear. The be. invisible sun, which you don't see, but you know it's there. You might not see it, but it's there. So this is a very subtle way. He given me, you know, I remember in the music, I used to be kind of macho, and I used to smoke a bit and get kind of... Uh, uh, revved up, and you know, I, I I realized a lot of times I kind of messed up his music, and I felt bad about it later. But I, you know, he never complained. He always gave me another chance. Um, but I, I, you know, I get carried away, and I was playing just to just to let out my energy. But that's not a good way to play. You should play to s- support the music. No, no more energy that's needed. So. He gave me these like Zen cones kind of thing. One of them, yeah, he said to me, he said, he said, I, I, I want you to play like you're drumming on a sleeping baby without waking the baby.
0: Hmm.
1: And I, I'd rather say, you know. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> baby would sleep through so that. i go in the back. Mm. So I practiced that. The other one he told me was uh, Q-tip happy drums. Imagine you're playing with Q-tips and you're happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> These things help, you know
0: When he gave you this name Did it give you the freedom to Separate yourself from What you knew of as Bob Moses
1: Yeah, well, you know Sometimes being Bob Moses is a drag You know, no question about it Sometimes it wasn't the best Thing to be Yeah. So, you know, we are more than that we, All of us are more than that We're more than our karma We're more than our blood Potentially yeah. Some people are locked into their blood and to their, um, you know, river of blood, their, their ethnic patterns, their particular family vibe that was handed down and stuff. But, you know, I think uh, the wise person keeps what's useful and what's positive that's in their karma and, and tries to let go of what's holding you back in your karma. And mm-hmm. you know, We talk about cultural music. And I grew up with culture music, love it, and knew the pl- a lot of the best players and stuff. But, you know, we talk about African music or Jamaican reggae, or uh, I grew up playing with the Puerto Ricans, playing salsa music. Man, the music was killing, and the drumming was amazing, the congueros and the timbali guys. But, you know, the behavior was, you know, they didn't eat the most healthy food. The, the, the dudes, for the most part, I'm generalizing, but they would, they would have sex with as many women as possible and the more women they, they nailed, they would be like, ah, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the man, you know. But if their woman even looked at another guy, it would be like World War III, you know. Mm-hmm. We, even uh, Lyoko from Japan was saying to me that when she goes to Japan, she couldn't cross her legs. That they, that's Women don't do that there. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, misogyny in this uh, in these cultures, you know. Yeah. Um, I remember hanging in Jamaica with the rasta, smoking the, uh, these giant spliffs, and we're talking about music and and all this, you know, heavenly stuff, these very esoteric conversation. And the women were never part of it; they were cooking and taking care of the kids. And I didn't like that separation. But these, let's face it, these are these are part of the culture as well. So what I've learned is that all culture as beautiful as it is, I say it with complete respect, is bondage. Mm. And, uh, and one of the things that I, that Tesiji helped me with, he said was, he said, um, to be really free and to be yourself, you have to let go of your attachment to black music and African music. Mm-hmm. But see, I don't regret any of that, because, especially if you're a young white guy that doesn't, that's not born into the, that kind of drum groove level, yeah. No, it's very good to get down with African music, with Samba, with the six-eight. I've done all that stuff: dance music, funk, jazz, swing, New Orleans second line. It's it's good, but uh, I'm glad I didn't skip it. Definitely glad I didn't skip it. But uh, no, I, I, well, today the drummer I had a student. He got he got into a second line, and I got right in on it with it with the djembe, and it was sweet. Chris Brown, he's a Nashville guy, great drummer. Yeah finally had an adult. He got all these students that were like 18, 19. They don't even shave yet. But this guy, it could, it could really play. He was a grown up, It was a great cat. Um, so yeah, I can go back into that, and I respect it if I'm playing with people from the culture, I do my best not to mess it up, to honor it as the sacred, it's sacred music to these people, but it's not my sacred music. I need to be freer than that. I need to be, you know, um, no, I played with these master drummers from Ghana. That was a trip, you know. And, but, the, man, they're going to play this, almost the same stuff the next night. I don't know what I'm going to play the next night. I like it that way.
0: Yeah.
1: I like the freedom. I like not knowing. Mm. Most humans, which includes, will include musicians in that category, um, <laughs> they like to play what they know, what they grew up with, what they've heard a lot, what's familiar to them, like comfort food and stuff, you know. Yeah. And, and that's what's healing to them. That feels good to them, you know. And I'm not judging it. But for for certain of us, I don't think, uh, I think there's less people like this, but um, what heals me is to play what I don't know and what can't be known with the rational mind. Or another way of saying is untranscribable, that's what I am. (laughs) Do you you think, or have
2: you spent time thinking about your legacy?
1: No. No, should I?
2: Well, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah maybe I mean I'm just curious know. if you like what you would what your legacy is I don't know I don't, I don't is that's I don't, not important to you well you know look
1: when I do workshops or something when I go do a master class or something I've I've considered like what the kids or whoever shows up can take away from it you know what what are they getting from it you know I give them a couple of things to work on sometimes like the medita- uh, resolution point meditations which is a good especially for young players you know um, but mostly, I realize that nobody will ever be able to play like I play because they haven't lived my life. I have a very unique path in life. Nobody's life is like mine except mine. Mm-hmm. So they will never be, there will never be anybody be able to play with mine. So like me, I'm unimitatable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I really. Th- you, wouldn't you say so, Clifford? Yeah, you can't imitate how I play. Nobody could. and nobody will. But so, what can they take from seeing me? They say, well, this guy ain't, is not playing the usual stuff. Yeah. And maybe I don't need to play the usual stuff. He's no, he's no genius, but he's got his completely his own thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe I can do that. Yeah. So that's what I think people can take away, you know. But also, you know, nobody knows the whole, all the aspects of, of a person. There's people who don't know that I'm a painter, but I'm actually a better painter than I'm a musician. A lot of people don't know that I'm a composer. I'm actually a better composer, natural composer than I am a drummer. Mm. So, uh, you know, but some people will discover it in the, past, in the future, you know. Maybe say, wow, this guy's paintings were amazing, you know. Or his compositions was fantastic. Or they won't, you know. I don't worry about it. I'm, I'm not really doing anything for recognition. That was also a, a liberating thing. I don't care if anybody likes what I do or gets what I do or understands what I do. I'm playing for my own spiritual healing. Which is karma burning, not karma wallowing. Yeah, and so, um, but it, but usually people really do like it, and I've gotten comments from people too. who Said, "Man, I never listen to free music or free jazz, but I love what I heard." You know, we played we played in in uh, Idaho at the Mormon school with my friend Ryan. These are some square-looking white people, but let me tell you, with bow ties and crew cuts and uh, and uh, you know the big Adam's apples and their. <laughs> Mormons, uh, you know, (laughs) and the first time I played with him, we were playing the guy's compositions, which were mostly in time. He's a beautiful composer, Ryan Nielsen, and a beautiful trumpet player. The second time, because I'd been kind of working with him for a year and kind of opened him up, we played played some of the same composition, but free, rubato. Mm -hmm. And I noticed the difference of the audience. The first time, people enjoyed it, but it was like, oh, that that was excellent music. We heard some excellent music last month. Somebody came through, and they were, they were excellent. And next month, there'll be somebody else coming, and they'll be excellent, probably. And this was excellent. But when we played free and open and rubato like that, people came up to me and said, oh, man, you made me cry. Wow. You know, they, the the experience that they're looking for in church of ex- exaltation, of seeing the divine, came through more in the liberated plane, in the freer plane. And it's interesting. When I played with a group in Europe, with Mike Roloff's brilliant piano player from the Netherlands, and Ryan Carniow, who's an American trumpet player, but he lives in, in, in Germany, outside Kuhn, or Cologne, as they call Cologne, they say Kuhn, I think. Um, we would play some of my melodies, some just free, but we played a couple of Tsige's melodies. And as soon as we played to CG's melody, the whole vibe changed. It's like the audience became like church, like prayer mode. Wow. So it's very interesting, and, and we're playing very, very free. So most of the time people are, are very kind and say, "Oh man, I, I love what you're doing." And even more, it's not like you know, you see a concert and they do some flashy drum solo and people go ah. You know, it's more like quiet kind of thing like, "ooh!" Ah, that, oh, that really moved me. Or I, I was kind of down, but I heard that, and that made me feel light. Are they
0: surprised how much they enjoyed free music? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. sometimes, you know. But,
1: but if they don't, I don't care. I don't care. Glenn Gould, one of my heroes, classical piano master, mm-hmm. he said the best uh, artist-to-audience to, um, ratio is one to zero. And he quit touring at the height of his popularity when he was getting big, big money because he was a superstar in the classical world. Glenn Gould, killer, playing the Bach, Goldberg, very, I mean, he's a killer. I love this guy. Very unusual character, too. There's plenty of of footage of him. Plus, there's a movie about him called 32 Short Stories About Glenn Gould. That's a wonderful movie. But, uh, yeah, he just decided, and he was, like, young, 30-something, that, he didn't. Want, he wasn't going to tour anymore, and they were offering him huge bread. He said, "No, I'm going to go in the studio with my own piano, on my own chair, and with my own engineer, mm-hmm. and I'm going to play, and I'll make a record, and I'll edit it the way I want to edit it, and then you can buy the record, and you'll get the best. I mean, there are no wow. distractions. Okay, you know. I remember when I was younger. I don't not this way now, but uh, when I was younger." I'd be playing the drums. I see a beautiful, sexy woman. I'd be distracted for a minute, or children distracted. Women and children tended to distract me. I'm always drawn to both women and children. I would see little kid, and I go, "Oh man, look at the little kid!" And um, yeah, I try not to be distracted anymore. And you know, I'm just do my. I give them the real me, the best of who I am. If people love it, and often they do, beautiful. If they don't dig it, that's cool. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. And that's that's a freedom, too. That's like giving up the, the need or the attachment to being liked or being popular or being understood. I really don't care about it. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, as I'm getting older and getting closer to die, I will admit that I, I would like it if people listen to some of these records, uh, only because they are kind of extraordinary. They're all unique. There's not one, not two records that are anything alike than the other one, right? You, you've got yep. a bunch. Yep. And, um, and I put a lot of work into them. And they're like nobody else's music. And the best of it hasn't even come out yet. The, the one I did with this with Gaia is unbelievable, Gaia Wilmer. She's a genius composer from Brazil. She plays saxophone too, but she's a Hermeto Mingus level composer. And I, I have these things, I call them sonic beds, which are me overdubbed several, many times, several three, four, five times on a, on a simpatico zone of percussion the same type of sounds or simpatico sound. They're not meant to be solos. They're meant to be a bed or a cushion. In other words, to play over, to improvise over. Okay. I've made many records with people I hadn't even met. Yeah. I sent them the beds, and they play on my bed. Yeah. You know? So anyway, uh, what made me think of the beds? I forget now. Are
0: there recordings coming up?
1: Oh, with like- oh, well, Gaia, yeah. I, yeah. I, I said to her, because her, comp- her composing is so amazing, I said, Gaia. I, I, this was four years ago. I said to her, something like that. I said, I, would, "Would you like? Would you want to make a record of your comp, compose some stuff over my beds? Because they're percussion stuff too, but they're very tonal. Whenever I do one, I take my melodica and I find what key I'm in, because I'm usually in a key, and I'm not. It's maybe not exact like classical piano, perfect A four forty or something, but they're usually very tonal if you tune into them. You know, and she her ear is incredible. You know." So she said, yeah, I like that idea. So we have a, a collaboration record, the music of Gaia Wilmer uh, and Rakalam Bob Moses. And uh, anyway, we, she had COVID came through and she had to go mm. back to Brazil and like okay. that. And finally she recorded like last April. This record is a masterpiece. It's like nothing I ever heard because the beds are so free and organic. And, and this beautiful, it's like this, classical orchestra coming out of the woods. I mean, it's like nothing I ever heard. Plus she got incredible people like George Garzon is on there and Leo Genovese, the piano player from Argentina, like really, uh, uh, actually I have to get all the names because I didn't even know all these people. She has a woman singer that's incredible because she could sing all these perfect melodies but also make uh, sounds like that. And uh, a flute player, a woman flute player, I think she's Russian, I don't know. Um, so it's not available quite yet. No, 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 no. It's close. It's close. It's close. Yeah, that'll probably be the next one on okay. Rocketown Records. Yeah, and, and
2: also Bob Moses is the website. We'll, we'll
1: have
0: links mm, in
2: yeah. the. Show I'm on Bandcamp too. Also, yeah, I think yeah.
1: So. so most yeah. of my records are available on Bandcamp and stuff. So, but that's a that and yeah, that's like no like no music I ever heard and that's like a grammy kind of record if i'm if i was ever in that i'm not in that world to get a grammy or something but
0: anything else coming out that you can speak to oh the edgar baymond yeah. you know that's okay.
1: a lot man i got my groove date which has been working on for 15 years uh i've got like at least 15 records that are in various states of completion or incompletion you know
2: we recorded down in new orleans and then also rock alum came to Nashville and recorded um with, with Jet, well, Jeff Coffin yeah. brought brought Rakhalum to Franklin.
1: Two yeah. days, two days, yeah, and the second day, these master drummers from Guinea came by, and Clifford played. And and Danny Gottlieb and Beth Gottlieb play. Yeah.
2: So we had we had uh, two six, drum sets, six drummers, two oh, percussionists, six, two African percussionists. So so six drummers, yeah. six
1: drummers, and three saxophones, three wild saxophone players. That's amazing. And that record is like you know we have to wade through fifteen hours and find the best stuff. The same with the New Orleans session. We did two days. We I, you know so, uh, my engineer sent me the files. I haven't had a chance to listen to it. I, I will and then break it down and we'll try yeah. to mix, pick the best of it and mix it.
0: How can people discover? these things when they come out
2: your website in Bandcamp right
1: yeah Bandcamp okay. website I have a bunch uh, is on is uh, on the internet I, I belong to this a company called the Orchard who put does your does your you know downloadable stuff okay you know yeah um, so most of them are, are there on the Orchard you know when I get a new one I put it. I have 30 albums out on Rock Records and yeah. the, as I say the best and I have some masterpieces if I do say so with no undue <laughs> modesty um Well, no false modesty, you know. Um, But the best ones haven't even come out yet. So I'm really trying to to finish them while I, again, while I still have a body, you know. I got slowed down a little bit because my engineer, who has all the files, he was going to move to Memphis with me and his girlfriend put the kibosh on at the last minute. So he wound up... Stuck in Boston, working at the Whole Foods that he hates, you know. Oh, yeah. But I'm, I'm gonna, I'm after, when I go, I'm gonna go north in the, in the, maybe in the spring and maybe go a month in Boston to work. I also got a newer computer. We haven't done it yet, but theoretically, it'll be possible to do um, uh, remote mixing and stuff, you know. Yeah. So
0: I got one more thing. H- how are you feeling?
1: Oh, man! This, I can't tell you how happy I am, man. It's like beyond belief. You know, physically? Are you asking me physically? Oh man he, he, nobody knows the trouble I say no I, I'm cool look i went I went to I go to the doctor a lot you know I have uh stage four cancer my digestive system is pretty messed up um it's hard just you know the, you know really you know uh get, get rid of waste material and uh um my teeth are kind of thing I have a skin condition you know. <laughs> but I told, I, and then and then my car died on the highway. Going, going. Jeez. I told my oncologist. I said, you know, I've got stage four cancer, and that's the least of my problems. <laughs> and the guy started laughing. And he's a guy who doesn't laugh too much. He's a serious yeah. Serbian, Doctor Jankov. You know, I like this guy, but he's a yeah. serious guy. But he was laughing, and, I said, and that's true. Um, so, I'm okay. Plus, plus, I'm in love, which I never expected that to happen. Like, uh, yeah. Tell us,
0: a, let's. Can we close with that story? Oh, sure. Of your sure. rediscovering. Of yeah. Love. Oh,
1: sure. Oh, that makes me so happy. I saw her, I talked. I had a little time after my student today, so I, I called her on the phone. I, I met her in 1980 in Molden, Norway's, but northern part of Norway. I came there in '80 with Steve Kuhn, Sheila Jordan, Harvey Schwartz. you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that was a great group. Kuhn is my favorite piano player of anybody. And I have played with Keith Jarrett and Herbie mm-hmm. Hancock wow. and Cedar Walton and a bunch of great piano players. Uh, Bill Evans, I played with Bill Evans. Wow. But, Kuhn is my favorite piano player of all of them, you know. Anyway, uh, getting back to Elma, I met her, um, you know, uh, 1980. And it was her job. She was 23 years old and I was uh, 32. And uh, she was absolutely gorgeous. And I was actually pretty handsome. Hard to believe looking at me now. But in those days, I I was a good looking guy, you know. And... uh, but that you know but it wasn't that because there were actually a million beautiful women around it's summertime in Norway man you know yeah, what uh, can you uh, say? thousands of beautiful women you know mm-hmm. but her she had a vibe you know and and almost invariably because I never been good at chatting up women I never had a good line I was never like a player kind of guy that could always talk women into ba- usually uh, for women got with me it's because they would see me play and they uh, they would they say oh man the way he plays drums maybe I I go talk to this guy, you know, he's got he's kind of sexy on the drums, you know. <laughs> so, but with her, as soon as I got off the plane, I looked at her and I said, "Oh man, this woman, whoa. <laughs> deep, deep, deep. Wow, she's something something else." I felt, and it wasn't just her physical beauty. She was so compassionate and helpful and giving and caring and smart. Mm. Um, and she was an acrobat and a dancer too in those days, you know. Um, she did some stuff with the circus. But anyway, and she saw me and had a similar similar feeling. Right. So we, I, I tried to spend as much of those three days with her as possible. Uh, you know, she had other things to do and job to do, but uh, I spent every minute with her that I could for those three days. And we kept in touch for a little while. I even wrote a song for her. We had some letters. She found some letters from me. I found the pictures in my file of pictures that was from 1980, You know, and um, which is really sweet. I'll show you. They're in my phone. Yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, I had these gigs in Copenhagen not too long ago. I was there for Halloween um, playing with Mikala Ustegor, a great uh, woman drummer that I played with her quite a bit. But anyway, uh, her friend found me on Facebook and asked uh, if it was okay to give my contact to Elma. And I said, absolutely. I had never forgotten her. Yeah. Often wondered about her, you know. Yeah. Forty-three years, you know. <laughs> uh, and I said, ah, absolutely, sure. And so she started writing me, and and it, she took a while to have some courage because she she didn't think she wasn't sure I would remember her. I told her, Are you crazy? Oh, man, of course I remember you. She got her courage up. She wrote me, and I, and I was oh, so happy to hear from her. So we started writing. I said, you know. I'm coming to Denmark, I know it's not that close, but it's probably as close as I'll be. Yeah. She has to take two flights, she got molded to uh, to Oslo, and then Oslo to uh, to Copenhagen. But uh, yeah, she said, would you like me to come? And even as a, you know, she was still so considerate, she said, you know, I know you'll be working, and if you only want me to come for a day or two days, tell me what the best days are, because I have to book wow. the ticket. That's right. And I, I took the plunge, I was like, oh. Or I could, she said, or oh, I could come for the whole week. I said, Come for the whole week. <laughs> Boom, I just jumped off the cliff, you know, and uh, boy, I'm glad I did. That was just a few weeks ago, and it, it wow. got it got deep, quick, got really deep, quick. Wow. And uh, I would say unequivocally, she's the love of my life. no doubt, and I have no doubt. There'll be nobody else till the end and beyond. Because, uh, you know, I wasn't with a woman anyway in 30 years, so I'm certainly not going to be with anybody <laughs> else now that I found her. And and the more that I know her and talk to her, the more I love her. And I'm no, I'm under no illusions. I don't see her as perfect. I'm not perfect, you know, but, man, I love her. And for some unimaginable reason, she really loves me. So this is a, it's a beautiful thing. It makes me very happy. I was already very happy. Wasn't I, Clifford? Right? But now I'm like, I'm walking off the air. And she's a great painter and an artist, too. And I told her she should do a painting where we're both, where we're holding hands and we're both like up, <laughs> rising off the ground. And the, the title of it is Lighter Than Air, Rising in Love. And there was one other thing that said, uh, oh, I can't remember now. We had a beautiful title. Sometimes she writes words on her paintings because her paintings tell a story, too. Mm. So, but that's basically it, you know.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us and how you're feeling and what you're going through right now with finding a lost love and everything. And I appreciate your time today. I enjoyed it. It's an honor to meet you and have you here. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank well, we, I coming.
1: talk more English. I was really intending to come and just wow. Wow! 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 Wow smash have do I gotta tell you one other thing before we say goodbye you know I got this smartphone now I never had one until two years ago I'm a complete idiot on it like like pathetic I don't even know how to take a selfie on the thing okay <laughs> but um, my son showed me you know he's pretty de- adept at it you know he said well dad you know and I hate typing because my fingers are stubby I always wind up hitting the wrong letter mm-hmm. and stuff so. He said, Well, it has a microphone uh, icon at the bottom, you know. He said, So if you hit the microphone, it will transcribe Uh-oh. what you're saying, you know. Yeah. So I never use it that way, or almost never use it. What I do is uh, I talk into the phone. And I just talk drum talk. And Siri, whoever's in that phone, whatever intelligence is in that phone, (laughs) does its best to translate into English. (laughs) I love it. And these are some of the most the funniest um, abstract poetry. And I'm writing a book now of my own abstract poetry. It's going to be called Haiku, like (laughs) H-I-G-H-K-O-O, and many of them are collaborations with the phone. And I'll alter it, change the line. You know, the phone isn't always perfect, but it does. The, the phone th- get
0: a cut? Of
1: any proceeds? <laughs> They're already getting a cut. I'm paying. A, <laughs> I'm paying two hundred dollars a month for that <laughs> damn thing. They get more than a cut. You know. Besides, a, like a
2: hurricane came from that, right?
1: Yeah, that's one came from that. Because uh, sm- I, I can imagine this, the the rhythm of that, snuggle like a hurricane. You know, and, it, it, and the machine said, "Snuggle like a hurricane." <laughs> and then the next line was, "Kundalini window pane." That was from Siri. That part? I think that was mine. Oh, okay, you know, I, I mean, I collaborate with them, and then uh, <laughs> then was the other one uh, smack, smack a Panda Ponder Train. That's one, okay, my, yeah, that's one yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Some, so, yeah, yeah. so you know, they're sometimes collaboration. they're, they're hilarious sometimes, it's amazing, and really. Uh, so I get at least uh, I get a lot of frustration with the phone that I don't know how to use it but i also get some laughs out of it so yes you
0: know. what's the band that did rock me like a hurricane Who was that band no, that rock no, no, no. band oh, yeah. scorpions they're Scorp- gonna have to redo hug me like a hurricane <laughs> Yeah, snuggle. It was snuggle snuggle like a hurricane yeah, by the scorpions like yeah. all right thank you so much thank you that was Thanks fun for doing this yeah that was fun so there you have it my interview with rock alarm bob moses it was such an honor to have him on this podcast and have him here along with Clifford Kaufman. I encourage you to go to the links in the show notes where you could check out many of the recordings that were discussed here and the things that Rock has recorded over the years. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Davide Dorenzo, a Toronto-based drummer who plays with Cassandra Wilson and many others. So be sure to check that out. But for now, thanks so much for listening and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.